Okay, well, good morning. Oh, I am so excited to be starting this series. I just, I love the book of Genesis, and I, I love it, I love it, I love it. I hope, even if you don't love it, and even if you've never read it, you will grow to love it as well as we study it together. Um, you may never have read the book, you may not know much about it, you may have heard a bit, um, but the word Genesis just means origins, which is why we're calling the series that, or beginnings, if you like. And so what we're going to do is, over 12 weeks, we're going to be following the the thread of hope through the book. We're going to be sort of seeing how it is that God, in these stories which look like they're about the beginning of the world or about a very messy family and very dysfunctional family, are actually preparing us to see how the good God is going to fix everything and why the world is messed up in the first place. And it's a fantastic book. And in many ways, the rest of the Bible and the rest of human history, in a lot of ways, are extended footnotes to the book of Genesis. In a lot of ways, it just there's so much in here that we're going to see that helps make sense of the kind of world we're in and what God is doing about it. And uh, if you are not a believer, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity, or if you're not a, a Christian at the moment and you're just here looking in, you're very welcome. And I hope you're going to enjoy some of the series as well. You may have a whole load of questions about the way that this book interacts with the findings of modern science. In fact, you may have those questions if you're very old in the church as well. You may have lots of questions. You think, I've been a Christian 70 years and I still don't understand. But that's great as well. But we are, because of that, we know that there's a lot of questions of that nature. We're going to have a a particular evening where we're going to do a seminar on it with lots of questions and answers. Um, We're calling it just an origin seminar. We're going to have it here on Wednesday the 24th of May. And it might be the kind of thing you might be interested to come to if you have questions about the relationship between Genesis and particularly science. That's the main, main area. If not, that's great. Give it a pass. If you do, it might be the kind of thing that would help. And the reason I'm mentioning it is not, because, not as an advert, but really because I think there would be, we're not going to look at a lot of those questions in the Sunday mornings. So I wanted to make you aware of why. I think sometimes you read Genesis 1 and people think, right, we're going to get into the age of the earth and the dinosaurs and all that. We're not going to, apart from just now, I'm not going to mention those things. That's not what we're going to be talking about. And the reason for that is that the writer of this book was not really very interested in them. We are. They're our questions and they're good ones. And so we're going to be looking at them in this seminar. But that's not the main thing the writer is in. In fact, the writer probably didn't know anything about some of those things. It's not what he's talking about. So we're going to, if you like, pick up all of that kind of stuff and dump it in an evening session and talk about it there. And then on the Sundays, we're going to be looking at the things that the writer is concerned about. God, Israel, hope, blessing, covenant, things like that. So that's where we're going to be going on the Sundays. And I hope that makes sense of why we're doing the seminar as well. Um, And we're going to kick off today by looking at the origin of everything. And starting in Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible and can turn to Genesis 1, that would be brilliant. We're going to be looking at the story of Adam and Eve and the origin of everything. And my guess is that for most of us here, we have, probably all of us, have some outline in our minds of what these chapters are about, even if we've not read them. So you might be not a believer, you might be new to Christianity, you've probably still got some idea what Christians believe about the beginning of everything, because it's so common in our culture. So you probably know something about God creating the world in a week, and human beings, and naked people, and talking snakes, and fruit, and a terrible fall. You've probably heard some of that stuff anyway even if you've never read it in the Bible. So rather than reading it all now, uh, what I instead want to do is to focus on four 
particular moments in these three chapters that introduce us to the origin of something of huge importance. And those four things are the origin of everything, which is mainly what chapter one is about, the origin of humanity, which is mainly what chapter two is about, although it begins at the end of chapter one, the origin of evil, which is mainly what chapter three is about, and then beautifully the origin of hope, which we find peeking through in chapter three and verse 15. So that's sort of like a, where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. I mean, Genesis 1 to 3 in half an hour, you, we're going to have to leave some stuff out, but that's what we're going to try and do, God willing. So the origin of everything, chapter 1. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. It's just a few short sentences that my son can understand. And yet the ramifications of which are still being wrestled with by theologians and philosophers thousands and thousands of years after it was first said or written. Right? There are some huge questions which these few verses just raise and then immediately address and kind of give an answer to. Right? I can think of at least three huge ones which are just in those four verses. Big, big questions that in many ways all of us, whether we're believers or not, have to have a working answer to, even if we reject the answer that Genesis gives. But we need to address, need to think about them. One of those big questions is this. Why is there something rather than nothing? That's got to be a question that those... Any of us who live in the world at some point are going to want to ask, why is there something rather than nothing? And effectively, there are only two types of answer to that question. There is one answer is there is an eternal, infinite cause, who we might call God, an eternal necessary being that is there at the beginning of everything. And the other answer is there's an infinite series of contingent causes or things that might not have been what they were but all caused one another in a massive long sequence. So you have a universe before which was a big bang, before which was something else, before which was something else and it all goes back to but an infinite series leads into the distance and there's nothing at the end. And the uh, example that's often given, this conversation, Indian myth that's often given to explain that idea, um, often even to make fun of the idea as it was in its original form as a discussion between two people where somebody says what is the world sitting on and they say the back of a turtle. And the guy says, well, what's the turtle standing on? And they say, on the back of another turtle. And what's the out turtle? He's on the back of another turtle. And the guy eventually says, well, so what's at the bottom? And he said, oh, there is no bottom. It's turtles all the way down. And in some ways, that's the image that we're dealing with. You either have, ultimately, before everything else, you either have a necessary being, a thing that has always been there as eternal and infinite and necessary, or you have a massive, infinite series of contingent things, like a long, long string of dominoes that goes off into infinity. And those are really your choices. And Genesis pretty emphatically says, we're going to go with God here, right? Those are our choices. We're here. We are on this side of the line. Take it or leave it. That's what Genesis is saying. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why. And some of us, and a lot of people find this whole, that comparison, those two options, is a pretty compelling reason to believe in God. Genesis isn't doing this, but for a lot of people, that's persuasive. 
Right? The, it's often called the argument from cause, or in fancy terms, the cosmological argument. You can cope with this just for a 60-second little soundbite on the argument from cause. This is a proof for God that a lot of people still use. And it's basically, Genesis 1 just emphatically states it rather than doing this. But the argument goes, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. Either because it's necessary or because it's been caused by something else. If the universe has an explanation for its existence, that explanation is God. If there is an explanation, then that must be something that's outside of space, time, and matter. Because the universe is space, time, and matter. So something outside of it could only be an immaterial, infinite being, God. The universe exists, therefore the universe has an explanation, therefore the explanation is God. And a lot of people still use that and still say that's logically, for a lot of people, that will be compelling. And in some ways, Genesis just doesn't want to go there, but at least opens up the question, how do you believe, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, in the beginning, God. And somewhere you have to pick your lane. Are you going to be in the beginning God or in the beginning infinite regress? Those are your choices. And Genesis says, we're here. And in some ways, that verse is the most offensive verse in the Bible because it grounds God's authority to say or do pretty much anything he wants in the remaining 31,101 verses of the Bible. Right? In the beginning, God created. Okay, well, you are then the author and have absolute authority. It's a challenging place to start, but that's what the Bible does. We're going to go in bold. A second big question these verses raise and then answer, if you like, is why is there order rather than chaos? And we touched on this a bit in our If God Then What series about six months ago, if you were around then, using a a quote Richard Dawkins likes using, which is, isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe in fairies at the bottom of it as well? And the point I made at the time is, yeah, of course, a garden doesn't make you believe in fairies, but it does make you believe in gardeners. And so if you look at the world and think this is ordered and beautiful, like a garden, which I think he does in that quote, and many people do, then it points to a gardener of some sort because the natural state of the world is to deteriorate into chaos and decay rather than to increase in order. When left alone, that's what happens. It's called the teenager's bedroom phenomenon. Yeah? So there is one form of highly specified order in the bedroom. Everything's arranged in the right place. But given time and a lack of intelligent sort of oversight, it will gradually disintegrate into a complete pigsty. And that's what happens in teenagers' bedrooms, and that's what happens in everything, actually. That's what happens to human beings, isn't it? We decay. The world decays. Things, things, highly structured systems disintegrate into energy. That's what happens in physics, in the world. And so the, the why is there order rather than chaos is a way of saying, hang on a second, according to what you would have me believe, billions of years ago, the world was just this dark, lifeless lump of rock, and now it contains the human brain How did that happen? Because everything else in creation goes the other way. It starts ordered and ends up in chaos. This ends up in chaos and ends in order. So how did that happen? And of course, Genesis gives a pretty clear answer to that as well. The earth was, without form and void, a dark, chaotic mess. And God said, and then suddenly brings order out of the chaos. That's how Genesis answers it. But it's an important question for all of us to think through. It's the speech, it's the word of God that brings order out of the chaos and darkness. But if you don't believe that, you have to think, well, why do we have all this order then? I guess the most important question these verses raise and answer is, what's God like? That's the third big question here. What is God like? And you can just see on these, on these verses, in the beginning, well, God is eternal. God is before the beginning. God created. Oh, he's a creator as well. 
God is good because God is the one who brings light and the light was good. God, so there's a lot of things you can learn about God just here. I think most intriguingly, you can see hints in these verses of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit at work together in creation, right? Verse 1, in the beginning, God. Verse 2, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, the Word of God is the one by whom things are created. So we actually have God, the Spirit, and the Word all active in the first three verses of Scripture. That doesn't prove the Trinity. I'm not going there. I'm just saying, wow, it's interesting that even here, you can begin to see some of the truths that will emerge later in the Bible. So there are some, I'm saying there is some big theology, some big philosophy smuggled into these very almost childlikely simple verses at the beginning of the Bible. And we could say a lot more about it, but Genesis is really clear, at least, God is the reason for the origin of everything. Then we're going to go down to verse 27 and look at for a minute at the origin of humanity, which is the sort of the next major phase. Right? The rest of Genesis 1 traces how everything then was created. But the, the main next new thing we see is the origin of human beings. And in verse 27, if you just scroll down the page, it says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God and blessed and commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so on. And that statement in Genesis 1.27 is the foundation for almost everything positive that people in this room believe about human beings, even if we're not Christians or have never read Genesis. So for some of us, it'll be very, a very direct relationship. God says, human beings bear God's image, so we believe. Many of us, it will be indirect. Many of us, we will have come to believe certain things about humanity, not because we've read Genesis. Many people in this borough, certainly in this position, they've not necessarily read Genesis, but they have been brought up in a culture that's been shaped so strongly by it that they believe that human beings have dignity and worth because they're human, even if they've never read Genesis 1. But that belief comes from here. In the ancient world, people didn't used to believe that human beings were image bearers of God. We'll talk about what they did believe in a moment. They, they, they didn't believe that at all. So they didn't believe that human beings were of infinite value just because they were human. But we believe that, and we believe it because of Genesis. We believe that people have and should be protected and have a dignity and that we should seek their safety and justice and welfare and flourishing, not because they're useful or will create wealth or because they're from our tribe, but because they're human. And that belief is incredibly radical, then as now, and it comes from Genesis 1. They bear God's image, and that's why we should treat them with dignity. You see, if you ground human rights in anything else, you destroy it. Right? If you study this at university, you'll know like, it's very difficult. Human rights discourse without something like this foundation is very hard to sustain because it's very difficult to know why you should treat human beings with infinite value. Because if I think you have value and dignity because you're like me, we very quickly end up with racism or tribalisms of various sorts. If I think you have value and dignity because of your intelligence or your viability, your ability to survive, we will very quickly end up with infanticide. 
with killing small children because they are not as viable or intelligent as adults are. If we end up grounding, thinking you have value and dignity because you will be economically useful to me, we very quickly end up with the genocide of the weak by the strong. And that's partly why our society, which still believes in human rights but isn't quite sure why, is sometimes unable to defend the rights of the very young and the very old in the face of a culture of death sometimes because we aren't quite sure on what basis, says who, we should treat human beings as infinitely valuable. And we do because of Genesis 1, because they bear the image of God, and that's the foundation. In fact, these verses probably ground not just our belief in the rights and dignity of a human being, but in all kinds of other things too. Sexual equality, male and female, both bear the image of God. Sexual complementarity, there's two sexes rather than one. Dignity, sanctity of life, so on. Genesis 1.27 says that you have value and dignity because you're a person, not because you're rich or intelligent or able or physically up to the mark. You are a person, and that gives you a value that you could never get no matter how advanced you became if you were a member of another species. This is Mr. Wonderful. I want to introduce you to Mr. Wonderful. So he was given to me by my sister-in-law, and if, in the, before his batteries ran out, if you pressed his hand, he would say really nice, charming things, like the like of which I would like to say. And I think that he is like an image of me. I noticed, I didn't realize this, but the guys at Lee just pointed out to me, he's even got the same shirt, right? You know, it, this is just like, hi. Um, and so Mr. Wonderful is like the image of Andrew. I think you'll agree that the resemblance is uncanny. And so if I'm going to represent an image of me, I'm going to use Mr. Wonderful. And if I was an ancient king... The way that I would mark out my territory and demonstrate where the limits of my land were would be that I would go out and place an image of myself on the borders of my territory. It was kind of a common practice. In fact, it appears even in the Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar does it in Daniel and maybe other examples we could think of. So, But kings would do that. They would say, here is an image. Nowadays, we don't do that. The British Empire decided they were going to do it with flags. But that's, in, the, in the old days, that's what they would do. They would say, here is an image. That is, you are now entering the land of King Andrew. And therefore, anybody who comes past this point needs to realize that his, this is the god or the king of this area. And then you put it over here and you say, and now you guys are approaching the land of King Andrew. That's how we would, would do things. You would place an image to represent what the king was like. And the one other place that you'd put a, an image of yourself was sometimes in the temple where if you were going to go through the different layers of the temple, you'd get to the inner sanctuary and you would find an image. And Israel didn't do either of those things, as we're going to see. But actually what would happen is if I placed my image out here as an image bearer of me as a king and somebody defaced it, that would be an act of sacrilege or blasphemy against me because it would indicate you have treated this with no respect and therefore you don't show me respect either. God did not put statues of himself anywhere in the world he'd made. He made you. He sent you and me out to be the bearers of the image so people could look at me or look at you and say, I can conclude things about the nature of God by looking at this person. I can think God must be like this, God must be like that, because I can see it in his image that I've got in front of me. And if somebody is to deface that image, to abuse that image, to sell it, to kill it, or whatever else it might be, I am degrading the honor of the God in whose image this person exists. And as a result, human beings have come to have infinite value because we are image bearers of God. The same is true in the temple, of course. You go through a temple of a pagan culture and you'll find a statue in the holy place. You go into Israel's temple, you will find no image at all because the image of God is you. 
And you have been made, no matter what, how useful you are or feel. You could be nine weeks old in the womb. You could be 90 years old in a nursing home. You could be unable to work. You could be unable to earn. You could be constrained by disability. You could be unable to have children. You know, all sorts of things that societies, different cultures might value. And you find, I don't think I qualify like that. And God says, yes, you do, because you're a human being. And as a human being, you have these rights just because you look like me. End of story. And God says to you on that basis, you are blessed and you are sent to fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and have dominion. But then we have to move to chapter 3 and we have to see the origin of evil, sadly. Right? This is dark. This is where it all goes wrong. And we're going to see the origin of evil. And this story is so familiar that some of us might need, a, we might need help almost to look at it from a different perspective, which we'll try and do in a minute. But this is what the text says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. Crunch. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Crunch. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As I say, this story is so familiar, we can miss its power. Can I particularly encourage you not to read it like a pettifogging legal infraction, like do not step on the grass. So my college at university, there are these little signs, immaculate lawns and little signs, please don't step on the grass. And everyone goes, hmm. That's not what this is in important ways. But some, some of us read it like that. Oh, don't touch that tree, but touch... That is not what this is. I'd encourage you, don't think of it as a legal infraction like that. Think of it instead as a number of... There's a number of different ways of doing it, but think of it, for instance, as a coup d'etat, an overthrow of the government, right? This is the moment where... There is a dividing line between creator and creature, right? And that line cannot be crossed in either direction. There is God who is creator. There is everything else which is created. Creator cannot become a creature. He can take flesh, but he can't become a created thing. And similarly, creatures cannot become creator. And then the snake comes up to the woman and the man and says, you can cross that line. Go on. You will be like God. Jump over the line. Take the same place as the creator and the king. Become like him. It's an attempt to instill a revolution. It's to say, you now need to overthrow the king and become like that yourself. So it's like a coup or an overthrow of the government. Or another way of looking at it, it's like a tantrum. Right? Let's not pretend for a moment that children are the only ones who have tantrums. I have tantrums as well. Right? I foam at the mouth less than children do, but I do. I define a tantrum as a moment when I know that I'm in the wrong and that my quickest route to happiness is to admit it but I don't. And instead, I nurture and cherish my pride and my feeling of independence for a few, I was going to say minutes, but that would let you off the hook, hours, and allow it to fester, feeling like, oh, I'm just going to enjoy the bitterness of feeling like sheep. I'm sorry, it is usually Rachel in this case, who has been right and I've been wrong. And then eventually you reach a point where you are exhausted and you go and say sorry. And I make less noise than my kids do when they have tantrums, but the heart is the same. In other words, a tantrum is a moment when you choose pride over joy. You actually know the quickest way to get happy is to say sorry, but you don't. 
It's the moment when you choose independence over happiness. Friends, that is exactly what happened in the garden. That's what the snake was trying to get them to do. You could choose to, be, to submit to God and to obey what he said, or you could be like God and know good and evil for yourself. You could be independent, or you can be happy. Why didn't you choose independence? And they did. And that, they did what you and I do. Every time we have a tantrum or an argument that we don't concede like that, every time a child has a toddler tantrum, we'd, every time Frank Sinatra is sung at a funeral... I do record shows, I took the blows and did it my way. He is echoing the fact that human beings still do that. We still say, I don't care. Yeah, it made me, at times, it was bad for me. I took a battering, but I did what I wanted. Independence, right. And actually, the, even the more sort of beautiful statement of it, which is equally, and they're almost worse, equally wrong, is in the movie Invictus, where Morgan Freeman is playing Nelson Mandela. And to be honest, that's just cashing all your cultural chips in one go. If Morgan Freeman says it, we believe it. If Nelson Mandela says it, we believe it. If they both say it, oh goodness, how could I not believe it? And yet, it is the essence of fallen humanity. Here's what happens. Morgan Freeman, playing Mandela, quotes, as if it's wise, one of the most foolish things that any English person's ever said, which is the poem Invictus by W.E. Henley. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate." I am the captain of my soul. And we all get sucked in and we go, yes, they're saying it, it must be true. And God is saying, no, you've learned nothing for thousands of years because that is the very thing that they did. They said, I don't care how much damage it does to me or other people, I'm in charge. And God said, that was what the fall was. And so for those of us who would say, who on earth would have done that? I wouldn't have eaten the apple, would I? Morgan Freeman and Nelson Mandela and Frank Sinatra and your kids and your marriage or whatever bear witness to the fact, oh yes, you would and still do. That's the essence of what fallen people do. Think of it like a coup. Think of it like a tantrum. Maybe even think of it like an affair. Right? The American writer Donald Miller does this. He says, I've got a friend who came home in Baltimore to hear his wife on the phone to another man talking about how much she enjoyed being touched by him. And my friend heard the conversation, but then left before seeing her and walked off downtown. He wasn't a smoker, but he bought a packet of cigarettes and he smoked all 20 of them. And he bought a a bus ticket to Pittsburgh and then missed the bus because he was puking into this filthy toilet because his entire life was going down the pan. And then Donald Miller says, and I think God in Eden felt like my friend in Baltimore. This is... This is a jilted lover speaking out of immense anguish. Some of us read that line in Genesis 3, what is this that you have done? As if it's God the judge saying, what is this that you have done? But actually, it's God the lover saying, what have you done? How did this happen? You've le- I loved you with an everlasting love and you've left me for him? That's what Eden is. It's not a don't step on the grass moment. And the first consequence of this terrible act is... Actually, it doesn't say anything about sin or death at this point. The first consequence is, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. Why is that what the writer tells us is the first consequence of the fall? Because when people derive all of their security and affirmation from a loving God, and then that relationship breaks, the first thing they do is to hide. I say, I'm no longer, I, maybe I'm not valued, maybe I'm not, can't get that affirmation from him. And you don't want anybody to see. If you catch somebody plotting a coup, they try and hide. 
If you have find somebody realizes that the tantrum they've just had is stupid, they immediately feel silly and try and hide. You have somebody who's having an affair, they will try and keep it a secret and try and hide. And friends, we have been hiding ever since. That's the fall, and it's a tragedy. And if we stop the story there, it is nothing but tragedy and darkness. But God is good. The God of the Bible is good, and he is committed to rescue. And hope has the last word. And this is the promise that God gives towards the end of this chapter. And in an astonishing move, he makes this promise, the first gospel promise in the Bible, he makes the promise to the snake, would you believe? Not to man or woman or the angels. He makes this promise to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed, that's as an offspring or descendant, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we've got two lines, two offspring here. And God is saying, snake, serpent, your spiritual forces of darkness and evil are going to be at war with the human race From now on, and one day, one seed will come from this woman, and that seed, you are going to bite him on the heel, and he's going to go, ow, that really hurt, and you are going to think you've won, and at the moment when you think you've won, you will find out that he has bruised your head, and you will never recover. So enjoy your day in the sun, my snake-crushing friend. The snake-crusher is coming. The snake-crusher is coming. So you might as well make the most of it now. He's on his way. And that promise of the gospel given to the serpent is vital to understanding the whole of the rest of Genesis. Because what this book, and in many ways this series will be, is like a big game of Where's Wally? We're going to be going through the book saying, where is that seed? Where is the hope now? What's he doing? How on earth is God going to bring rescue? As we read the text, we're just going to be going, where is this seed then? So God has promised us a seed, a descendant, an offspring of the woman who's going to come and crush the snake. But when, 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 where is he? Look at the mess the world's in. Where's the seed? And we're going to keep guessing. So Eve has some sons. We say, maybe it's Cain. No, he's a murderer. It can't be him. Maybe it's Abel. Oh, no, he's dead. How very sad. That's, maybe it's Seth. Oh, he's died as well. That's also very sad. Maybe it's Noah. Mm, did well with the flood, but a bit of a drunken embarrassment afterwards. Oh, maybe it's Abraham. Mm, close, but no cigar. Maybe it's Isaac. No, he's a partisan old fool. Maybe it's Jacob. Oh, no, I wouldn't buy a second-hand car from that guy. He's a terrible tow rag. And so it continues. And each generation, the promise is, if you like, deferred and restated. So each generation, God is effectively saying, the seed is coming through your seed. All the nations will be blessed, but not quite yet. And so each generation, it gets bumped back and bumped back, but restated by the God who keeps his promises until one night in another Middle Eastern garden, there is a young Jewish man on his knees in prayer and temptation comes. And where Adam had said, not your will, but mine, crunch. Jesus says, not my will, but yours, crunch. And the snake goes down and never gets up again. We're going to break bread as we conclude, which is the way that Christians have celebrated that message for thousands of years. Because it's the meal that we are going to share now that bears witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the only basis for hope at the end of such a terrible story. The only answer to the tantrum and the coup d'etat and the affair is that somebody came to be a second Adam to rescue us from the hole we dug ourselves in and have been willingly jumping into like lemmings ever since. And that hero is remembered in the bread and the wine as a 
as a snake crusher, as the conqueror of death and sin. And we're going to break bread in just a moment, but let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you did not leave us to stew in our own sin. But despite every wrong choice we have made and our forefathers have made, you have stepped into the world to destroy the works of the devil and to rescue us from the consequences it's worked in our own lives and in this world. And I thank you so much that in your mercy, even at the darkest hour, you still brought a promise of gospel and hope that I can cling to and that I have seen you honor in what you did on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I'm so grateful. We are grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Amen. Amen.